Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Mo ichido. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. It is so good to be here with you all as we gather to worship the Lord and to hear from Him through His Word. Today we're going to be covering a portion of Scripture that I'm sure many of you have read before. And many of you have probably heard many Bible studies on throughout the years. But I want you to do your best not to zone out. I think sometimes uh, when we come across familiar portions, portions of Scripture, we can have a tendency to uh, perhaps zone out or to think to ourselves, Oh, I, I know this portion of Scripture, or Oh, I've heard this one before, uh, and we can allow ourselves to kind of tune out thinking we know all there is to know uh, about a certain portion of Scripture. Listen, don't do that, okay? Please do me a favor and don't do that. God's Word is living, okay? It is active and it is powerful and it speaks to us as His children. And if it's something you've heard before, hey, maybe the Lord wants to remind you of something today in our text. Or perhaps there's a different perspective the Lord would have us to look at this portion of Scripture from. You know, maybe we've always seen it from one perspective, but God would have us to view it from a different angle. And so let's be open to what the Lord has for us today, trusting that He has us here for a reason, okay, that He wants to speak to us about things going on in our life today. So let's make sure we look at this portion with a fresh set of eyes. Today, we're going to be reading about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, I'm sure many of you have read this portion of Scripture before. You're fam- somewhat familiar to it. It is the only miracle prior to the events recorded involving the crucifixion and the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. Okay, of course, we're going to be reading it from Luke's Gospel this morning, uh, Luke chapter 9. But it's also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 14, in Mark chapter 6, and in John chapter 6 as well. As we go through our study of this miracle, we're going to reference all three of those other gospel writers to fill in some of the details that Luke leaves out in our study this morning. A study that I've simply entitled, Feeding the 5,000. Okay, Feeding the 5,000. Turn, if you haven't already, to the book of Luke, chapter 9. Okay, and when you're there, please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through the entirety of our text, verses 10 all the way down to verse 17. Okay, uh, from my Bible, I want to encourage you, if you're reading from a different translation, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. If you're reading from something different, uh, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them, asi- took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about five thousand men. 
Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessings upon our study. Father, we thank you for this morning, the privilege that it is to gather in this place, to open up your word, Lord, and to allow your word to speak. Lord, I pray that as your word speaks, Lord, you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that we would be able to look at this portion of Scripture with a fresh set of eyes, Lord, that we would be attentive to any new details or any new perspectives your Spirit may want to show to us or reveal to us. Lord, we trust that you desire to speak as we gather here this morning. And so, Lord, we are here to hear. We are here to receive. Bless this gathering Speak to us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Last week, we looked at the first nine verses of chapter 9 in a study I entitled Ministry Truths. And if you missed it last week, we do record our services and you can stream them on our Facebook page, or you can download them and listen to them from our website. But if you were with us last week, you'll recall that the heart of our study was in the first six verses that dealt with Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to put into practice the things they had seen and heard from Jesus throughout his tours of ministry in Galilee. Jesus went around teaching about the kingdom of God and preaching a message of repentance. As he did so, he ministered to the physical needs of the people as well uh, as the spiritual needs. He healed many from sickness. He cast out many demons. And now it was time for his disciples to go and to do the same. Yea, Jesus gave to them power and authority over demons and the ability to cure diseases. And he sent them out two by two to go out into the surrounding region and to preach the kingdom of God. And his disciples went and just did just that. Verse 6 of our text last week told us that they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Well, our text this morning picks up with the apostles returning from their journey, desiring to share with Jesus about all they had witnessed and been part of. So let's take a look at our opening verse once again as we jump into this account. And we're going to look to glean some principles and some truths from the details surrounding this miraculous event known as the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 10 says, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done, Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Verse 10 begins with describing the return of the apostles. Though we are not uh, given actually such details in the Bible, it's safe to assume that part of Jesus' instruction to the twelve when he sent them out involved details about where and when they would come back together and, and meet up with Jesus. 
We're not told specifically in any of the gospel accounts where they are meeting, but most assume that it's probably back in the city of Capernaum that has served as a sort of headquarters for Jesus and the disciples as they've ministered in the region of Galilee. Our text tells us that as the apostles returned, they told Jesus all that they had done while out on their mission. We can also, excuse me, we can almost imagine the excitement in their voices as each group of two told their own accounts of people turning from sin and responding to their message or how people were being healed from sicknesses, perhaps even freed from demonic possession. Now, I'm sure that Jesus was well aware of all that they did. You see, these reports weren't coming to him as some sort of surprise. And even though this is likely true, we get the sense that Jesus really did desire to hear from them. He, he wanted to hear them recap the events of their days to him. He wanted to have that time with them, to hear from them. You know, I believe the same is true of us, that Jesus desires to hear from us. Even though he knows about your day and how it went, he still desires to hear about it from us. Imagine, if you will, how our lives may be different if at the end of each day we took the time to come to Jesus and to give him a report of all the things we did and said. Of course, our report wouldn't be news to him, but it would be something I think he would love to hear from us. I wonder how different our actions, our words would be if we knew that we were going to sit down with Jesus at the end of the day and review all the details of the day with him. Perhaps during the day, our mind would remind us of that meeting with Jesus. Perhaps when we're tempted to say something or do something that we shouldn't, we would be reminded, man, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to be meeting with Jesus later on and we're going to be talking about that and I don't want to have to explain myself. So, you know, I won't be doing that. You know what I mean? Just that accountability. How would that impact our life? How would it change it? You know, maybe we shouldn't just think of this scenario as a what-if type of scenario, but actually put it into practice. Perhaps before we go to bed, the Lord would have us to recap the day with Him, to share with Him the details of how it went. Perhaps it would help us to develop a stronger bond and a relationship with the Lord. You know, I would encourage you to try and do so. Over this next week, okay, I don't often give homework, okay, but over this next week, I want to challenge you with this, okay? Each, at the end of each day, to give a little recap of it with the Lord and to see what happens. See if things change. See if it helps to develop a, a closer, intimate walk and relationship with the Lord. Well, Verse 10 continues, telling us that Jesus took the disciples. He went aside with them privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. So Luke doesn't give us all the details regarding Jesus getting away privately with his disciples. We need to look at the other gospel accounts to get a clearer picture of the entire scene. Matthew tells us the how of the departure, telling us that Jesus and his disciples departed by boat to a deserted place. Mark tells us the why, okay? Uh, the why of the departure, telling us that Jesus wanted the disciples to rest a while because there were many coming and going and they didn't even have time to eat. 
with these other accounts, we get a fuller picture of what's transpiring here. Jesus' disciples had returned, excited to tell Jesus all about their journey and the successes they encountered, but this is proving to be more challenging than anticipated because of all the coming and going of the people. You see, the picture being painted isn't just that there was a, they were in a busy place, but that Jesus and the disciples actually were being kept busy by the people. You see, Jesus often had crowds gathering around him, And if indeed he's in the city of Capernaum, it would be a very familiar place where people knew they could come and and see Jesus and meet with him. Also consider the possibility that the disciples are returning with a few followers of their own. Perhaps as they went out and preached the gospel and they told people about following Jesus, there were some that wanted to come and meet Jesus and hear from him firsthand. We get the sense from Mark's gospel that the people were coming and going around Jesus and his disciples. Okay, it's kind of like that situation where you know one group comes to Jesus, and as soon as an opening occurred, as soon as they would depart, there would be another one that would kind of jump in, and it's just revolving door of, of people coming to Jesus and the disciples. And this kept Jesus and the disciples very busy. And it made it very difficult to hear all the reports from the disciples. In fact, Mark tells us they were so busy, they couldn't even take the time to sit down and get a bite to eat. And I think that's going to play into our account later on. And so Jesus decided that it was necessary to take the disciples away privately to a deserted place. Jesus knew and understood the importance of rest of getting away and and separating from the hustle and bustle of activity and ministry. The disciples had just returned from their journeys that Jesus had sent them on. They had done all sorts of ministry. There were all sorts of people. Things were happening. People were coming and going. Things were busy. Ministry was happening. Things were good, but Jesus saw the need for them to get away to a place where they could be alone with him and get some rest. You know, oftentimes, I think we associate rest with certain places. I, I know that for myself, I do. Okay? I often think, man, I just I need to get away, you know, get up into the mountains, go camping, and just get away from the busyness of life. My go-to place is Seven Falls. I love going up there to uh, um and just to relax a little and get some fresh air and enjoy a little peace and harmony. Okay? Any of you guys can relate? You guys... Some of you are, all right. Well, maybe you're not a mountain kind of person, okay? Maybe not a camper. Perhaps you are more of a beachgoer or, you know, even a a hotel resort of some kind, soaking up the sun, relaxing on the beach, sitting poolside with a good book, right? I think most of us have some kind of place that we associate with rest and, and relaxation. Jesus knew the importance of rest. But he also knew and understood that true rest doesn't come from a place. It comes from a person. It comes from him. Jesus wanted them not just to get away to a deserted place to find rest, but to get away with him to find rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus states, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Listen, true rest comes when we spend time with Jesus. When we take time out of our busy schedules to spend with Him, we will find the rest that we are looking for. Jesus wanted His disciples to get away from the busyness of the day of the ministry and spend time with Him. You see, the things they were doing were good, but it wasn't as important as spending time alone with Jesus. You know, it's been said that serving the Lord is important, but spending time with the Lord is imperative. It's a must for us. Okay, We can't get so caught up in serving the Lord that we fail to take time out of our schedule to simply spend with the Lord. This, I believe, is the heart of the Lord for us. He wants us to get alone with Him and to enjoy the rest that He alone can bring. Ministry and serving the Lord is not the same as spending time alone with the Lord. Just because we're involved in ministry doesn't mean that we're spending time with Jesus. We can be involved in uh, Bible studies or attending Bible studies, volunteering our time, going to church services regularly, and still not be meeting with Jesus. Ministry involves spending time with people, ministering to their needs and to their desires. It involves serving others and being with others. It's not the same as spending alone time with Jesus. Those things are good. And I would encourage us all to do those things, but don't let yourself think that doing those things is the same as spending time alone with Jesus. One is good. Serving the Lord is important, but the other is imperative. It's a must. We need to make sure we're getting alone with Jesus and finding rest for our body, for our souls. Let's continue our text, taking a look at our next verse, verse 11. It says, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about those who had need of healing. No, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Excuse me. Verse 11 starts out telling us how the multitudes figured out where Jesus was going, and they followed him. Again, we look at the other accounts to get more details. Matthew tells us that the multitudes followed Jesus on foot from the cities. And Mark's gospel tells us that the multitudes arrived in Bethsaida before Jesus and his disciples and that they came together to Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, how is that even possible? How do they get in a boat, cross over a land of water, and people actually are able to run and get there you know, before them and, and be waiting for Jesus on the other side. You might be thinking, that doesn't sound like it's possible. Let me explain. It's important that we understand the setting of the scene here. Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, which at its widest points from the western shore across to the eastern shore only measures about seven to eight miles in length. Okay? Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they departed via boat, most likely from the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a city on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee, and the deserted place they were headed to was the city of Bethsaida, which is off the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I do have a map, okay? It's small, okay? I hope that it will work. Hopefully, you can see it, um, and hopefully, it'll help us understand the geography and what's happening here. If you can't see it, a number of your Bibles probably have bi uh, maps in the back. Just flip back there and see if you have one of the Sea of Galilee. But if you look at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, you see a city dot uh, with a red circle around it. Okay? That is the city of Capernaum, Jesus' home base of operations. And if you follow the small red arrow to the 
upper right, okay, um, it's pointing to and directing you to the city of Bethsaida. It's hard to see, but actually if you, there's a waterway that's coming down. That's the Jordan River. That, uh, so Bethsaida is just on the eastern side there of the Jordan River on the north northeast shores of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And so you see that this wasn't a very great distance. If a boat took off from the shores of Capernaum and headed to Bethsaida, you could actually watch its heading and know where the boat's destination was most likely going to be. And some commentators even suggested you could easily watch a boat travel from Capernaum to Bethsaida from the shores alone. And so this is what the multitudes did. They followed along the shore. They ran ahead of Jesus and the disciples to meet them in Bethsaida. You know, as I considered uh, the efforts of the multitudes, it caused me to pause and to reflect upon what lengths we are willing to go to in order to meet with Jesus and to hear his word. These multitudes were willing to run across the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee through a couple different cities to cross the Jordan River in order to come to Jesus so that they may hear from him and he may touch their lives. What about us? How much effort are we willing to expend to meet with the Lord and to hear from Him? How important is gathering together to worship Jesus for us? You know, I, I hope not to step on too many toes here this morning, but, you know, with all the, the talk about restrictions and essential services only and a quasi-state of emergency, you know, it could be easy to use those things as excuses for, for not coming to worship the Lord. And I applaud you guys for coming out here this morning and making this a priority to worship the Lord. How important is meeting with Jesus to us? Okay, what will we allow to get in the way? What will we allow to keep us from coming to worship and to hear from the Lord? You know, unfortunately, some have made meeting with the Lord a matter of convenience. Some come to worship Jesus when it suits them and when it fits their schedule best. If something else is going on or if they have other opportunities to go do things, they'll easily choose those over coming to Jesus. You see, the drive to come and, and meet with the Lord, the passion for being with Him simply isn't there. As I look at this multitude, I, I think they leave us a great example. May we be like the multitudes here who sought out the Lord. They didn't allow any obstacles to keep them from meeting with Him and hearing from Him. May we pursue the Lord with the same sort of vigor and determination as the multitudes did. Not allowing, you know, uh, the fact that Jesus is going out in a boat to keep them from meeting with Him and coming to Him. They ran along the seashores and ran ahead to Bethsaida so that they might be with Him. Verse 11 continues, stating how Jesus received the multitude and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need. Remember, though, that the purpose of this trip was to get away, to have some private alone time with the twelve, to rest and to talk about all the twelve experienced upon their journeys, hopefully to get a bite to eat as well. But as soon as they arrive, the multitudes are there waiting for them. Imagine, if you will, what the disciples must have been thinking. They were, no doubt, excited to get alone with the Lord, 
to spend some quality time with him, to tell him uh, all the details of what had happened while they were out preaching and teaching and healing the people, the excitement of all that. And as they pull into shore, they see this great multitude of people. They're waiting for them. Well, not for them, right? They were there for Jesus, wanting to see him. Can you imagine how they felt? Have you ever tried to just get away for some peace and quiet only to have your plans foiled? I know you can, okay? Some of you moms here can relate. You've had those times where you thought you'd be able to get away even just for a few minutes only to be interrupted by a a crying baby or a screaming toddler or even a disgruntled teenager. And you think to yourselves, can I just get a minute to myself, right? We... I hope Farrah's okay with me saying this, okay? You know, we've got a little toddler, right? And he doesn't care that you're going to the bathroom and the door's closed. He's like, Psh, open up the door. Our doors don't lock. You can slide them really easily. We have to tell people when they come over our house. Our kid opens the door. Just kind of keep your hand on the door, you know? But, <laughs> you know, sometimes Farrah's like, can I just go to the bathroom by myself, you know? Um, some of you moms can relate, I imagine, right? I imagine that's what the disciples were feeling at this time. They're probably like, man, can't we just get some time to be with the Lord by ourselves? You know, we're trying to get away from you guys. But that isn't what the Lord thought. It wasn't what the Lord saw when he looked out upon the great multitude. Mark's gospel tells us, what, tells us that when Jesus saw the multitude, that he was moved with compassion for them because he saw them like sheep not having a shepherd. Jesus desired to care for them and to minister to them like a shepherd ministers to a flock. He put his own desires to meet with the disciples to the side so that he might minister to those who were lost, those who were helpless, those who were without guidance, without nourishment, without protection. The people needed someone to meet those needs and Jesus had a heart to do so. And he truly exemplified the heart of a shepherd. A shepherd puts the needs of the sheep above his own. And Jesus exampled this for us over and over and over again throughout his earthly ministry, ultimately laying down his own life for us, dying upon the cross to meet our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins. This was the mind of Christ, and it is what he wants for us as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 declares, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, as followers of Christ, we ought to be willing to esteem others better than ourselves, to not only look out for our own interests, but to have concern and compassion towards the needs and interests of others. Jesus wants us to follow his example, okay, to die to ourselves and to selflessly serve others. Well, let's continue on in our account, reading verse 12. It says, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. We'll pause. Evidently, Jesus spent a good chunk of time ministering to the multitudes, for the day began to wear away. In Matthew's gospel, it says it was already evening, okay? 
Uh, however, we do need to understand that the Jews broke the evening up into two different portions. Okay, there was the early evening that began after 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and then the latter evening, or the second evening that occurred at sunset. Based upon the conditions described in our account, I believe it's safe to assume that the time being referred to here is the first evening. It's the early evening, sometime after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but not quite sunset. The disciples came to Jesus because they saw a problem. The hour was getting late, and they were in a deserted place, and there was no food to feed the people. Now, it doesn't say this, but I do wonder. If this wasn't just an excuse the disciples came up with. Remember, they left to get alone with Jesus, to spend some time with him, because they had been so busy ministering to the people that they didn't even have time to sit down and eat. Okay? I can't help but think that perhaps the disciples were like, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> These people need to go okay, so that we can eat. Okay? But that's not what they said to Jesus. They came seemingly thinking of the needs of the people. Hey, Jesus, you know, these people, they're probably hungry. You know, you've been teaching them all day and ministering to their needs. They need to go into the surrounding country and, and, and villages and, and buy themselves some food. Why don't you, you know, send them on their way kind of a thing? I imagine they were probably even a little upset, a, a little agitated, perhaps disturbed by the great multitude. Think about it, really, okay? These guys are tired and hungry, okay? I don't know about you. Okay, but tired and hungry, those aren't good combinations, okay? <laughs> um, how do you treat others when you're tired and hungry and they are keeping you from getting food, they're keeping you from getting rest? Usually not very well, okay? Maybe you're better than me. Maybe this is my problem, <laughs> okay? Tired and hungry for me is not a good condition, okay? Um, I'm not the best of company. But Jesus came up with a better plan. Let's read verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Jesus told the disciples, he actually commanded them. The wording is written in the imperative, which speaks of a command. Jesus commanded them, you give them something to eat. Now, John's gospel tells us something interesting about this command that Jesus gave them. It tells us in John 6, 6, that Jesus said what he said to test the disciples. You see, Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to test the disciples to see how they would respond. Would they rely upon the Lord, or would they try to rely upon their own resources, their own provision, their own efforts? You know, God often does the same in our lives. He allows us to face difficulties and obstacles, and, their, um, and he tests us to see how we will respond. Will we rely upon him? To whom will we turn when we're in a pinch, when we're in a bind and don't know what to do? Do we trust in our own resources and our own efforts, or do we come to the Lord? The disciples, they responded to Jesus, stating, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. The response we get from the disciples is really one of disbelief. Hey, there's... There's no way they could feed this sort of multitude of people. All they had was five loaves and, and two fish. Certainly, Jesus must not be serious here. 
And the, the other Gospels kind of support this idea, this notion. John tells us that the disciples clamored how even 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be sufficient for everyone to simply have just a, a little bit. Even what they did have, the, the five loaves and the two fish, they were something that was given to them by a lad from the multitude. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter's commentary on their offering of the loaves and the fish was, what are these among so many, right? Now, understand that a denarii was the equivalent to about a full day's wage. So 200 denarii would be roughly equivalent to about eight months of salary. Obviously, the disciples didn't have that kind of money just lying around with them. It wasn't something they could afford to do. Plus, there probably wasn't even a place close by where they could go buy eight months of salary worth of bread. Right? What Jesus commanded of them was impossible for them to do. Their resources were insufficient. And I believe that is the point Jesus was trying to get across to them. Jesus' heart was to get them to a place of complete surrender and dependence upon him. For them to realize that in and of themselves they were insufficient for the task. What Jesus commanded of them was impossible for them, but not for Jesus. Earlier in our study of the book of Luke, way back in chapter 1, we read of what the angel declared to Mary. He said, for with God nothing will be impossible. You see, the Lord is able to do the impossible. What we deem impossible, it is nothing for the Lord. Philippians chapter 4 encourages us and reminds us of a truth that Paul discovered. Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, in and of ourselves, we are insufficient. But with Christ, we can do all things. The impossible becomes possible as Christ works in us and through us. Well, let's continue our text, find out what happens next. Read with me verses 14 and 15. It says, for there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. We'll pause real fast here. Verse 14, it gives us an indication of the size of group that we're dealing with. Luke records for us that the number of men gathered together in the multitude was about 5,000. Matthew's gospel agrees with that number, but tells us that this number was besides women and children. If the women and children were counted, we'd be talking about a crowd that can easily be over 10,000 in number. In the rest of verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples to go out and make the people sit down in groups of 50. Now, you know, try not to look ahead, read ahead. We know what happens, right? But listen and understand and, and be a disciple here. Jesus still didn't tell the disciples what he was going to do. He just told them to go get the people to sit down in these groups of 50 on the grass. Imagine again, if you will, what must have been going through the minds of the disciples. Remember, they haven't read this chapter before. Okay? They have no clue as to what's going on. <laughs> Jesus tells them to get the people into groups, to gather them together as if they're going to feed them. But the disciples know full well there isn't any food to give them. Okay? Five loaves and two fish wasn't even enough to feed the 12 of them, let alone the 10,000 plus that were probably gathered there in that place that they were trying to group together. What would they say to the people? 
Hey, everyone, gather around in groups of 50. Sit down and get ready for, uh, we don't know, get ready for something, right? We'll, we'll tell you what's coming next later, you know. Uh, they have no idea what's going on, okay? Let's continue. Verse 16, it says, Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Jesus took what little they had and he began to work with it. He took the five loaves and the fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the multitude. The miracle took place in the hands of the Lord. As he broke off a piece of bread, more bread appeared over and over again. With each breaking of the bread, more bread was supplied, more fish was supplied. God took what little they had and did an amazing miracle with it. The disciples brought five loaves and two fish and said, what are these among so many? They thought what they had to offer was of little to no value whatsoever. But listen, the Lord wasn't concerned with what they didn't have or with what they lacked. Jesus just wanted whatever they did have, and he was willing to work with it. So often, we think we don't have anything of value to offer to Jesus. You know, we look at all the things that we don't have instead of the things we do have. We think, oh, I can't sing, and I can't teach, and I can't get up in front of other people, and I can't do this, and I can't this, and I can't that. Listen, Jesus doesn't care about that. What do you have? And are you willing to give it to him? Jesus will work with what we have if we give him all that we have. He expects no more, but listen, I believe he accepts no less. He wants all of us. He wants it all. He demands all of us. It doesn't matter how little or how much you have. He'll take it and he'll work with it if we are willing to give it all to him. As we see, the very little they had went a very long way in the hands of the Lord. And I want you to note something else here, very important. Jesus was the one doing the miracle. He was the manufacturer. He was the producer, if you will. And all he needed from the disciples was them for them to be distributors. Okay? We're not called to be manufacturers. We're not called to be producers. All we need to do is distribute what God gives us. We don't need to create something. We don't need to fabricate our own things. Okay? We don't need to come up with something on our own. Jesus isn't expecting us to do the miraculous. We just need to distribute whatever he gives us. This is his heart for us that we would give to him all that we have and we would allow him to work with it and then whatever he gives back to us, uh, we would faithfully distribute it to others. Let's finish off our text. We'll wrap this study up. Read with me our final verse, verse 17. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. The disciples continued to come back after each trip to more bread, 
and more fish. Each of them probably passed out close to a thousand meals. Each time they went out with hands full and would come back to the Lord, he would have more for them to distribute. Verse 17 says, So they all ate and were filled. John's gospel tells us everyone had as much as they wanted. Okay? This was a buffet. Okay? This was a feast. Okay? People ate as much as they wanted until every single one of them was filled with stuff. You know that, you get that feeling after you eat the buffet? Uh, that just, man, I'm just, I can't eat another bite. Every single one of the 10,000 plus people were filled to satisfaction. I'm sure, sure that it was the most delicious fish and bread they ever had. Verse 17 in our text ends with information about the cleanup job. It tells us that when it was all said and done, the disciples went around and they picked up what remained of the fragments, okay, the, the leftovers, if you will, and we're told that there were 12 baskets full. Not 13, not 11, but 12. How many disciples were there? 12. There was a basket for each of them. The word basket here, it's actually used to describe a a small wicker basket. You see, during that day, Jews would carry their food in these small travel-sized wicker baskets whenever they would travel through Gentile countries to avoid their food from being defiled. And so it was very common for them to travel with these. It was like a a personal-sized lunchbox. It was a a bento basket, if you will. The disciples didn't think what they had was enough. We've got five loaves and two fish. What are these among so many? But God was able to do much more than they could even imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 describes our Lord as the one who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's heart for us is to take all that we have and do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. You know what? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 states, that I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Let me tell you the truth, church family. This applies to this world we live in now, and to eternity that awaits us in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of Scripture that we can look at. Lord, a familiar portion of Scripture, but Lord, hopefully a portion of Scripture that you used today to speak to us. Lord, I do pray that we would take that challenge just to get away with you, to recap our day with you, that we would know and and understand your desire to hear from us. Lord, that we would desire that for ourselves as well. That we would know uh, the true meaning of rest by just getting away and, and spending some quality time with you. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart, your eyes to see how we may minister to the multitudes.
how we may follow in your example, dying to ourselves and putting the interests of others before our own. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to give what we have and to know that it is enough. Lord, you're not concerned about what we don't have. You're not concerned about how little we have to offer. Lord, you'll take it and you'll use it and you'll do amazing things with it. Lord, may we be faithful to come to you and give you our all. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.